27-year-old by the name of Phil Carson arrived in Darwin in 1981 to take up a job at the hospital. No one suspected this softly spoken newcomer would go on to become one of Darwin's longest serving surgeons, especially Phil. He notched up a career of 40 years, completing more than 15,000 operations, from croc bites to gunshot wounds to head injuries and the odd removal of a foreign object from somewhere it shouldn't have been. My name's Jess Ong, and you're listening to an episode of Spun Stories Podcast, a live storytelling night in Australia's Northern Territory. Now, life as a surgeon was demanding but routine. It was when Phil got a call after dark that he knew something was different. My hand scratches around on the bedside table in the dark of my bedroom as I scramble to find the phone that has just woken me from a deep sleep. I put it to my ear, and there's a voice, young, female, slightly anxious. Hi, Prof. It's Casey here, one of your new surgical trainees. Um, sorry to wake you, but I've got a bad one here. A man, probably early 40s, is in a car, hit a tree. He's got a nasty leg fracture, bad chest, but I'm most worried about his head. It looks pretty bad. His GCS was nine, though, at the scene. At this figure, my pulse begins to go up and my grinding thoughts start to align. A Glasgow coma score of nine means that at the time, he could obey a few simple commands. And that tells me that his brain is still working. And if we treat him right and on time, he may still be able to have a life, a self-determined life. Time is the essence, though. I'll be there in 15, I say to Casey. My red Volkswagen finds its own way down the deserted Rocklands Drive towards the looming shadow of the hospital. And my mind's elsewhere. It's going through numerous scenes of what I might encounter Will there be a controlled chaos of a group of people working around the body of a dying man? Or will it be under control and there'll be time to make a few considered decisions? I've done this journey hundreds of times over the years, but each time there's a slight rising level of anxiety as I approach the hospital. What will I find? Will I be up to doing what's necessary that night? These days, there's a little extra notch of anxiety to those feelings. It was only a few short years ago I sat helplessly by, living through the horror of my own daughter's severe head injury. The emergency department never sleeps, and as I walk in, its energy and light slaps me awake. I find Casey, and she's sitting over by a computer monitor, and together we go through the, the screens of the CT that have recently been acquired. It looks bad. The skull's fractured, and there's a large white shadow where there should be a background of black and grey. Translated, that's a large blood clot coming from within and pressing on an injured brain. Within the close confines of the skull, there's very little room left. If I do nothing, this man will die for sure. We go quickly over to the emergency uh, resuscitation bay 
And there he lies, strong, muscular, olive skin, dark hair, a brace on his leg, a tube coming from his chest going to a drain on the floor. And there's another tube from his mouth going to the breathing machine. And his head is swathed in bloodied bandages. I dance around the anaesthetist and examine his pupils. And they're still reacting to light. There's still time, but not much. I take a brief pause. I know nothing about this man, about his past, his plans, his future, his desires. We haven't yet been able to contact his family. If I do nothing, he will surely die. I have to make a decision. Okay, team, let's get him to theatre, quickly. The theatre at two in the morning is like a disturbed beehive. There's eight or nine people buzzing around, all doing assigned tasks, getting ready for this emergency operation. I call for a short halt and quickly present the facts so far. There's time for a little exchange and a bit of clarification, and then I emphasise the need for urgency. As the rest of the team get the, get the man onto the operating table, Casey and I go next door to the scrub-up area and standing side by side, washing our hands, I tell her a bit of the reasoning behind the decisions I've made. For the rest of the evening, there'll be a dialogue with this young surgeon. I want to transmit to her all that I've learned especially all the, time, the times that things have gone wrong and I've learned from my mistakes. In a few short years, she'll be standing in my place and I might be the person on the table. We drape the patient with sterile drapes and just leave a window uh, for his battered, shaved scalp. I call for a scalpel and incise the tough skin and there's a sudden spurt of blood this is expected and it takes some time to control. The yellow white bone of the skull comes next. In this case, crisscrossed with fracture lines. Using power tools, I take out a large disc and expose the underlying tough dural membrane. Normally white, in this case, it's dark and bulging indicating mischief beneath. On opening, a large clot extrudes. The brain, normally convoluted, fine, covered with fine membranes and a fine mesh of, vesicle, of, of vessels, in this portion looks like the consistency of toothpaste. My mind wanders. This man's thoughts, his emotions, his fears, his ability to act, all tied up in this organ, so badly damaged. Elsewhere, the brain looks more normal, and as I watch, I notice it gently pulsing in time with the anaesthetist's heart monitor. It's like it's thanking us for releasing it from this 
dark constrictive cage. My mind snaps back onto the task and I begin to gently remove the clot from the underlying brain. The theatre becomes calm and there's a sense that we might be doing some good for this man here in the middle of the night. The background levels of noise gradually rise until about 15 minutes into, the, into this phase, I notice the brain suddenly begin to swell and it mushrooms out of the large opening we've made. I turn to the anaesthetist and say, brain swelling, can you lower the CO2? And, he, and she uh, responds by increasing the ventilation rate. This is a disaster. This means that those areas of brain that I thought were normal were in fact severely damaged and reacting with this, this gross swelling. I rapidly <clears throat> close the scalp and then I leave. I leave the registrar to do the final stages and go over to the, to the desk in the corner and begin to record the night's events. There's a dark cloud hangs at the back of my mind, and I'm very aware as well of these notes being used for his ongoing care, that at some stage they will be perused by perhaps hostile, legal eyes. We leave the team to get the patient off the, the table and take back to ICU. And the registrar and I go down the corridor towards the patient waiting area. This doesn't get any easier, I tell her. I mean, the actual mechanics of doing it does, but this decision-making, this, this, it's just, it's just hard. We open the door and three sets of eyes look up. We sit down and we go through what we know so far of the accident, the injuries and what we've, what we've done. I carefully but uh, deliberately emphasise the points about that have happened that tell me this man won't do well. It's important to be honest, but it's also important to leave hope. And none of us really knows or can know 100% what will happen. They have few questions. And so we get up to leave and I promise to catch up with them later in the day when things will be a little bit clearer. I can't remember the journey home. The next thing I'm sitting in the lounge room with the uh, early light of dawn just breaking through the window and going over and over the case. Did we, did we do the right thing? If I'd got there earlier, would that have helped? It's an impossible question. My mind uh, 
goes forward and back, replays. Could we have done better? As I close my eyes and drift off into the blissful arms of sleep. It takes a certain someone to remain so calm under such pressure, and Phil was clearly born to be a surgeon. Phil shared his story at our event at Darwin Festival in 2021, where the theme was After Dark. Now, this is the seventh season of stories from the Northern Territory making their way into the world, and I wonder what runs through your head when you listen to this podcast. How you picture Darwin and the Territory to be when you hear these stories and descriptions of a vast, sometimes unforgiving landscape, with weather that's either hot, humid and wet, or dry and coolish, but where the sunsets reveal colours that pop like you've never seen before, and the cacophony of cockatoos finding a perch alongside the honking of magpie geese and the threatening screech of protective plovers... And when night falls, the creepy call of the curlew. I wonder what you see. As you can tell, nature is a big part of life when you call the territory home. This proximity keeps us on our toes. And maybe this is why so many people who are on the hunt for something different or who just want to be something different make their way here. Whatever it is, we love it. Because here at Spun, we work really hard to find these Territorians and help bring their stories to life, to provide a platform to connect, especially in these times, to trigger conversation and encourage empathy. It's a real privilege to peer into the lives of others, so I hope that wherever you're listening, it provokes an interest in those around you. In this story, you heard story production by Johanna Bell, with sound editing and production by Gaya Osborne and music composition by Sam Carmody. Darwin International Airport provides funding support to get our podcast into your ears, and we're part of the Creative Production House Story Projects. The Larrakia people are the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather to connect through stories here in the Top End. We're grateful to and acknowledge their contribution to the story-rich place we get to call home. My name's Jess Ong. Thanks for listening.